0: People have always sought ecstatic experiences, moments where they go beyond their ordinary self and feel connected to something greater than them. Such moments are fundamental to human flourishing, but they can also be dangerous. Beginning around the Enlightenment, Western intellectual culture has kind of written off ecstasy as ignorance or delusion. But philosopher Jules Evans argues that this diminishes our reality and denies us the healing, connection, and meaning that ecstasy can bring. In his book, The Art of Losing Control, A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience, he sets out to discover how people can find ecstasy in a post-religious culture, how it can be good for us, and also harmful. Along the way, he explores the growing science of ecstasy to help the reader and himself learn the art of losing control. Evan's exploration of ecstasy is an intellectual and emotional odyssey drawing on personal experience interviews and readings from ancient and modern philosophers from Aristotle and Plato via the Bishop of London and Sister Bliss radical jihadis and Silicon Valley transhumanists the art of losing control is a funny and thought-provoking journey through underexplored terrain which Evans creatively maps out like a tour through a festival with stops at the major pavilions along the way complete with a cutely drawn festival map at the front of the book Jules Evans is a policy director at the Centre for the History of Emotions at Queen Mary University of London. He's the author of Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, which was published in 19 countries and was a Times Book of the Year. Evans has written for The Times, Financial Times, The Guardian, Spectator, and Wired, and is a BBC New Generation Thinker. He also runs the London Philosophy Club, the world's biggest philosophy club. He joins me today to discuss his new book. Hello, my name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is philosopher Jules Evans, who's agreed to talk with us about his book, The Art of Losing Control, A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience. Jules, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Carrie.
0: First, I want to... I want to start by asking you a bit about yourself. You have your fingers in a number of philosophical pies, it seems, and you also have a fairly harrowing story about a pivotal moment in your life. Can you tell us how you came to be involved in the things you're doing today?
1: Well, um, that's a big question. I mean, the short version is um, that uh, I got into writing, I got into philosophy and psychology um, because I had um, some emotional problems when I was a teenager, and in my early twenties, um, I, uh, my friends and I uh, were quite kind of reckless experimenters with um, psychedelic drugs when we were teenagers. So we were like um, '90s hippies, um, and by and and we had some like fun times with that. But by the time I was 18, through some bad trips on a couple of bad trips on LSD, I developed what was later diagnosed as social anxiety and post-traumatic stress. And so I had a firsthand experience of how our minds and our emotions can really mess us up. Um, you know, I was very much at the mercy of these negative emotions and, and was very confused and suffering, I would say from about the ages, age of 18 to 24. Um, And then, I mean, I, I was helped by various things, including cognitive behavioral therapy, and, um, I wrote my first book about how cognitive behavioral therapy came from Greek philosophy. So I became very interested in that and the idea of the, the ancient Greek and Roman idea of philosophy as a medicine for the mind. Uh, people like Socrates or the Stoics thought of philosophy as a form of therapy, a form of care for the soul. Um, so my first book, which was called Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, was about how people can use ancient Greek philosophy today as a, as a means uh, to flourish, uh, and as, as a kind of uh, consolation for difficult times. Uh, and I was very involved with the revival of Stoic philosophy in modern life. I organized the first gathering of Stoics probably for about 2000 years. Uh, that was in San Diego in 2011. And I organized two conferences known as Stoicons. Um, so, uh, but by the time I finished that first book, I felt that Stoic philosophy wasn't, and kind of rational Greek philosophy wasn't quite enough for me and that it missed out certain important things. Um, I felt that it was a bit over-individualistic and over-rationalistic, and that it missed out things like romantic love and festivity and dancing uh, and the imagination. And also it missed out the kind of ecstatic experiences and that whole domain of human experience. So I started to um, research that and spent about five years um, exploring that area of human experience.
0: Okay. So to begin, let's talk about what you mean by ecstasy. Uh, You write that our contemporary Western culture has a problematic relationship with ecstasy and that we have a materialistic worldview that denigrates ecstatic experiences and that this narrows and impoverishes our experiences of reality. So tell us what you mean here.
1: Um, so I define an ecstatic because so I'm talking about a type of experience which, on the whole psychologists don't talk about much. They tend to just ignore it. Um, when they do talk about it, they use different terminologies. So William James, the psychologist, William James, he wrote about this area of experience and he used the phrase religious experiences. He wrote this famous book, the varieties of religious experience. Um, Other psychologists might talk about transcendent experiences or flow states or altered states of consciousness. But I I like the phrase um, ecstatic experience, which comes from the ancient Greek word ecstasis, uh, which literally means standing outside. So an ecstatic experience is a moment when you stand outside your ordinary sense of self, your ordinary sense of who you are and how reality is. And you feel often a deep connection to something greater than you. Now, in classical cultures and and in medieval culture, that would usually be interpreted as a connection to God or to some kind of um, supernatural power. But I was interested in how people find those kinds of ecstatic experiences in, um, in modern Western culture and how they make sense of them. And they might not necessarily interpret them in a religious way. So you might feel an ecstatic connection to nature or to the universe or to other beings or to a particular person or group of people. Now, ecstatic experiences can often, uh, you know, nowadays we often, when we hear the word ecstatic, we often think it means very, very happy. Um, so if you Google ecstatic, Um, you probably get results from the sports news. It'll say things like, you know, um, Mets fans ecstatic after uh, victory. Um, But actually, uh, ecstasy in the traditional sense of the word can involve things like euphoria and deep happiness and serenity, but it can also be quite frightening um, because you're going outside your ordinary sense of self. You're to some extent kind of surrendering control and feeling connected to something in some ways much greater and much more powerful than you. So it can also be um, scary as well. Um, and I guess my, my, my basic question is, I, my, 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 there's, there's two parts of the book, really. There's a historical aspect to it. So I argue that uh, Western culture has rather marginalized um, ecstatic experience and, and particularly religious ecstasy Over the last 300 years, as we shifted to a more kind of um, materialist and disenchanted worldview. Um, And we've rather pathologized ecstatic experiences. So modern psychiatry has often um, basically labeled um, ecstatic experiences as as mental illnesses uh, and called it things like hysteria or a symptom of psychosis Uh, or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia um so as a result there's often a kind of taboo around ecstatic experiences we might have them but we don't really like talking about them to other people um so i I guess i want to know how can we find this kind of experience uh when is it good for us and when is it bad for us
0: right and you mentioned the 1960s actually as a period that saw a revival of ecstatic practices um such that charles taylor characterized our current state as a spiritual supernova and it would seem now that we're perhaps living in the hangover of this supernova so please tell us what taylor meant by that term
1: yeah so i mean he he wrote this book um, a secular age about our shift to a more kind of secular world view um but he said we we still seek transcendence we seek still seek to go beyond our ordinary egos um we just we found different ways to do that so he saw what happened in the 60s as just a sudden explosion of different forms of ecstatic practices into western culture not just a revival of christianity by any means but instead all these different types of practices things like Eastern contemplative practices, things like psychedelic drugs, things like you think about kind of rock and roll or the sexual revolution, and then also some rather darker things like uh, cults or extremist movements, which were also in a way tapping into people's desire for these intense experiences. So there was, you know, there was this kind of almost a, 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 an ecstatic wave swept through Western cultures in the 1960s. It was this explosion, but it was often in quite a, you know, uncontained and, and, and even dangerous form. So you had things like, you know, cult leaders, or you had the hangover from the sexual revolution, or you had a lot of people getting into problems through reckless experimentation with psychedelics. And I think what's happening now is almost, it's like a second wave after the 1960s, but in a rather more a mature, careful, measured way.
0: All right. So let's go to the entrance gate. You've laid out your book, uh, Like a Festival, with a number of tents. And the first stop on our tour of the Festival of Ecstasy is uh, the religious experience at the entrance gate. So you explain that there are three different types of these religious experiences. Can you tell us about them and about how they can be both positive and negative for the people experiencing them?
1: Um, Yeah, I don't think I use the term religious experience. I think I called it kind of spontaneous ecstatic experience. Isn't that right? Oh, I'm sorry. In the first chapter. Yeah. So basically, uh, I I definitely don't want to call them religious because the whole point about these experiences is not everyone makes sense of them in religious ways. Um, But basically, a spontaneous spiritual experience is an experience that you don't necessarily seek. So for most of the chapters in the book, I'm talking about people actively seeking these kinds of experiences, but spontaneous experiences, are things that just happen to you. So let's say you're just walking down the street or you're walking through Yosemite National Park or something and you suddenly feel a shift in your consciousness and you feel maybe a deep sense of connection to your surroundings or connection to other people. And these moments can happen just out of nowhere. And yet um, they can really change people and be very important for their lives. So um, I collected, uh, you know, accounts of different people's experiences like this. For example, the rationalist philosopher um, Bertrand Russell was walking down the street in London one day. And then something happened. For some reason, he suddenly felt what he called a moment of mystical illumination. And he felt a deep sense of connection and sympathy for the strangers walking around him. Uh, And that moment really changed him for the rest of his life. It didn't make him a Christian. He didn't interpret it that way. He remained a kind of fervent atheist his whole life, but he became much more humanitarian. Before that experience, he was kind of an imperialist. And afterwards, he was a committed pacifist. So there are lots of examples of of, of these kinds of spontaneous experience which can happen to people. And, of course, sometimes they wonder what the hell it is, and they might not have the vocabulary for them, this, this just strange shift in their consciousness, this strange sudden sense of fullness and connectedness and aliveness. And they might think, what the hell was that? And sometimes those experiences are just a kind of, a glimpse of a deeper life and a deeper sense of connection to your environment and people act on them and are very changed by them. And then sometimes they just happen and people don't know what to make of them. So they don't necessarily change you (laughs) because you don't really, you know, work to integrate the experience. Um, so I talked about that. I talked, I think in that chapter as well about, um, near death experiences, which are a similar kind of thing. You know, you, um, you might have a uh, a serious illness or a cardiac arrest, or or or, or be in an accident, and suddenly you you feel your consciousness has shifted to somewhere else. You might feel uh, kind of in, in 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 a connection to some kind of higher power or some kind of. Uh, white light type experience. And there's quite good scientific research on this now. There's now, you know, these experiences are surprisingly common and they often share some features, even in in, in different cultures. Um, so I became interested in that topic of near-death experiences and to some extent interested in this whole area of, of ecstatic experiences, because I had a uh, I guess you could call it a near-death experience. When I was about 24, I was in a, um, a bad skiing accident. Uh, I actually kind of fell off a cliff when I was skiing. Uh, and and then the, at the moment of impact, right, you know, I felt I, I had this kind of classic experience, which I now realize is quite common with other people, of feeling in connection with some kind of white light and feeling... Uh, you know, deeply uh, loved and restored. So that was a tremendously kind of, it sounds strange to say it, but it was a very positive experience for me, uh, that bad skiing accident. And and I was quite uh, changed by it. So again, that's, that was an experience I sought. I wasn't seeking to go through the fence on the side of this mountain by mistake. Um, it was spontaneous. It was unexpected, but it was still very healing.
0: So let's move on to the next stop on the tour, which you call the Revival Tent, and this takes the ecstasy of the spontaneous experience from the ultra-personal into the group setting. So you talk about how this manifests in certain kinds of Christian churches in particular. Tell us about your experiences here. Well, I guess I was
1: interested in a type of uh, Christianity called um, charismatic Christianity, which is a christianity that's very open to the holy spirit and really has a place for a, an ecstatic type of experience. So you see that in churches like um, the old 18th century methodist churches where they would be they would very much open themselves to what they, you know, kind of holy spirit type encounters. You see it in movements like the Quakers, another 18th century movement. You see it in the pentecostalists of the of the kind of 20th century churches. Uh, and then in in neo pentecostal churches as well, and i living in Britain, which I guess is um i don't know about Canada, but it's probably quite different to America. Britain is an incredibly incredibly secular country um only i think less than two percent of the population go to church um every week so um I was interested um in 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 kind of these like ecstatic Christian churches, as whether they're a place where people can go to um, to find ecstatic experiences within these rather emotional services, where there's a lot of singing and dancing, and then rather dramatic preaching. And then when when people pray in these kinds of churches, they are opening themselves to the Holy Spirit, inviting the Holy Spirit in. And then you know they will often have ecstatic type experiences, experiences of healing or of inspiration or prophecy. And so to research this, I went along to a a famous church in London um, called Holy Trinity Brompton, which is the home of something called the Alpha Course. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Um, Well, it's like, it's very popular. I mean, it's like millions of people around the world have done it. Uh, And some of it is just like, um you know you sit around you get given some nice food you talk about your life it's all pretty normal in a way it's just a nice kind of you know weekly group meeting um but then uh, towards the end of the course they try to help you to have a kind of holy spirit encounter they get you to invite the holy spirit in so it was kind of peculiar in a way um but i uh and and i mean to cut a long story short i um I ended up becoming a Christian, uh, while researching this book, I kind of, um, I had an ecstatic encounter myself in a, in a, in a church in Wales surrounded by ecstatic pensioners. Um, uh, it was, you know, very peculiar, uh, situation, but I, but I've, but I had, you know, I guess I in some ways was caught up in the experience and was to some extent seeking it as well. And so I ended up, um, converting to Christianity and announcing my conversion, uh, on my blog to the horror of most of my readers. Cause they were mainly <laughs> rational Stoics who, who, who followed me because of my first book. And then there I am going, I've, I'm a Christian. And so like about a third of my readers unsubscribe immediately. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, And then even more tragically, after about a year, I decided I wasn't a Christian. Uh, I I, I decided that there were basic aspects of it. I couldn't believe and I was just kidding myself. So then I felt even more confused. Um, But, you know, it's a very interesting experience to look back on. And I do still think about it a lot, about what exactly happened to me in that church. and, And is Christianity i mean it's you know in some ways it is a framework in which people which helps people to go beyond themselves um it you know it's a framework which helps them through things like community and ritual and music and prayer transcend their ordinary egos and feel a sense of connection both to each other so i was struck by how strong a sense of community there is in in some churches and to some kind of higher something or other, which you could call God. And of course, the model of God that they try to help people connect at its best is is a kind of loving God. Though, of course, I I, I guess not always. Sometimes it's a rather rather crappy version of God that they make people encounter, a rather judgmental God. so it was. It was just a strange year in my life, really. Uh, and I come away from it. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm glad I'm. I'm not in that church anymore. And I kind of think how funny I was in it in a, in a, in a way for a year. But um, but I still have, I guess, respect more respect um for my for my Christian friends, and I see the point of what they're doing in a way. And you know, when I look, I guess they are still providing spaces where people can go to go beyond their egos. And I think we lack those kind of spaces in, in secular British culture. So rather than just laugh at Christians, <laughs> I think it's interesting to think, what do they get right? And how can we, if we're not Christian, create those kinds of spaces for community and for transcendence, which helps people to go beyond themselves in, in safe ways? Because of course, sometimes places where go for self tra- places where people go for self transcendence can be a bit toxic. Do you know what I mean? Um, say, right, we're going to help you find transcendence now. Just give us all your money, or uh, we'll help you find transcendence now. All you've got to do is hate gay people or hate other religions or something like that. Do you know what I mean? So, can we as a culture develop places where people can find community and self-transcendence in ways that aren't exploitative, uh, which aren't dangerous, which aren't toxic? I think that's an important question for our culture.
0: Yeah, I like the way you put that. Mm. Well, on the next stop on our tour, you call this the ecstatic cinema, and here you look at the potential healing power of art in connection with Carl Jung's views about the subconscious. So, how do these three elements of art, psychology, and ecstatic experience come together?
1: Well, um, as religion declined in Europe um, over since since about the seventeenth century, many people lost that avenue to self-transcendence, the avenue of the church. And so people looked around for substitutes for alternative ad- avenues. To self transcendence. And one of the most popular alternative avenues that people have found is the arts. Um, many people say um, that if you ask them, I've done surveys on this, have you ever had a um, self transcendent or spiritual or ecstatic experience? And many people. When they talk about those kinds of moments for themselves, they say that they got them through the arts. Maybe it was watching a particular film, like, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Some people say that the first time they saw that film was a kind of spiritual experience for them. Maybe it was walking through um, a gallery or a a cathedral or or a beautiful piece of architecture. You suddenly felt just kind of gripped or transported, and your consciousness uh, shifted. I remember the first time I saw Florence, the skyline of Florence. I was 14 years old, uh, and I walked through. I was outside Florence. I walked through an olive grove, and I suddenly saw the skyline of this beautiful Renaissance city. And I've never forgotten that moment because it expanded my sense of the of what of, of beautiful of what what beauty could be. So it kind of changed me that moment. Um, or it might be perhaps a, a poem that you read, maybe when you were a teenager, maybe something like Emily Dickinson or Walt Whitman, and you'll always remember that moment and how you felt when you first read that poem. So these kinds of experiences can be very transformative for people. For a lot of people, of course, music is, is, is their main way to this type of experience. I mean, I talk about that in the next chapter, so I won't talk about that here, but um, I mean, I don't know about you, Carrie, have you, is, is, is that something you, you can relate to? I mean, is there, uh, do you, have you ever found a work of art or, or a book or something like that has ever kind of really had a deep uh, impact on you and, and, and uh, given you a kind of uh, epiphany type experience?
0: Well, it's funny you mention it because um, I, uh, I spent my third year of university in London uh-huh. And uh, discovered the great big clubs and the great big bassy um, experience that you can have in those clubs, and mm. and so I've always been deeply connected to bass music ever since. I've tried to. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned <laughs> that a little bit in your book, and I thought that was uh, that was cool. But yeah, for me, when you're exported, like you talk about the unselfing, when yeah. you're in one of those places that's uh, engineered to be able to generate that frequency of bass. That uh, mm. reverberates your entire body. For me, that is an out-of-body experience entirely.
1: So. <laughs> that's amazing. So yeah. what are we talking about? Are we talking about places like the Ministry of Sound or Yeah,
0: yeah. I've been to Fabric. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can't I can't remember them all now. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, so it, that's interesting. Yeah. So so for you, you sometimes when we can talk when we talk about these kinds of experiences of transcendence, it sounds very kind of up in the air. It can do, a bit like you know airy fairy kind of thing but as you're saying often it's very somatic isn't it it is it's a me. kind of, yeah it can be a very deep bodied thing and that's true for a lot of them i mean like say if you look at these ecstatic christian churches like pentecostal churches it's very embodied and physical you know they'll they'll be kind of almost shaking uh with with their with these with with these kinds of experiences likewise um Likewise, it, with with music and and dancing and, and and the arts as well, it can be a very full bodied thing. Like, say, you listening to a piece of music or you read a poem and you feel a kind of hair standing up on your on your on your, in, in your on your skin um, and a kind of tingling. So, it, it is indeed very uh, somatic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, just to hop on to the to the next chapter, sure. just because it's connected to what you were saying. Um, the the next chapter, I look at um, music as a, as a means to ecstasy, uh, and, um, rock and roll, jazz, rave music. Um, and I, again, I think it's been one of the most important kind of substitutes or alternatives to the church, uh, particularly since the 1960s. And I look at the history of rock and roll in the book. And, and the relationship between rock and roll and Pentecostalism. So how, in a way, rock and roll and rhythm and blues music um, came from the church, from the Pentecostal church. How a lot of the great pioneers of rhythm and blues, James Brown, uh, Ray Charles, Tina Turner, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, um they 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 kind of started off in the church and then they took a lot of the kind of emotion and the ecstasy of pentecostal religion and they kind of secularized it and sexualized it and turned it into rock and roll and that gave white middle class agnostic kids a way into that embodied um ecstasy that that fusion of kind of uh, christianity with african rhythms to uh so it kind of created a church for the unchurched um and certainly like i guess for you know for 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 me growing up um some of the most powerful i would say spiritual experiences i had was 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 like going raving i mean i was uh, you know this was in the mid 90s so this was you know an amazing golden age for electronic dance music in the uk Um, and, and yeah, I remember going along to kind of, uh, raves and, and, and just the feeling, um, of, of togetherness with, with kind of strangers and, and these, this all night journeys of just kind of dancing to the music. And of course we were, we were altering our consciousness with drugs as well. So we were doing things like MDMA and, and, and psychedelics, and these were just unforgettable, nights really and, and I felt so bonded to my friends as well. We'll still talk about them 20 years later, the these nights. So um so I guess I guess I, I was interested in 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 rock and roll and other forms of, of pop music as a really important um means to to self-transcendence and to collective transcendence. Uh, And I interview in the, in the, in this chapter, musicians like David Byrne, who's the lead singer of Talking Heads and Brian Eno, um, you know, who produced Talking Heads and, you know, those two, they're so clever. They're they're such intellectuals and they both thought very deeply about ecstatic experience uh, and how music helps us to this kind of experience and how music can be a kind of alternative to religion because neither of them are religious. Um, so it was fascinating to, to talk to them about it. Um, yeah,
0: it seems too like, uh, religion or, I mean, um, the music would be a way to achieve those kinds of experiences in ways that would maybe have fewer of the negative impacts. I mean, aside from the drugs, assuming that that's not necessarily part of it, <laughs> but cause you were saying before about the difficulty of achieving that without some of the negatives that can come along with it. And it seems like music may be one of those where,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, one of my great heroes um, when I was researching this book was Aldous Huxley. I just did a talk about him last night, for example. Um, And I just think he's an incredible, the the greatest analyst we have about self-transcendence. And he said that, you know, all form, all avenues to self-transcendence Can potentially be a bit dangerous and unhealthy because we're talking about, you know, a slightly messy aspect of human experience, unselfing, going beyond the self. You're talking about, you know, opening up your psyche. You're talking about surrendering ego control. So it can be very, very healing and very, very meaningful, like some of the most meaningful experiences in your life, but it can also be a bit messy. It can be a bit risky. And that's true of any avenue you take so even something like aesthetic ecstasy or ecstasy through the arts i mean that sounds you know fairly uh, riskless but that even that has its risks too um for example you could become you could you know you could use the arts as a, a way of to ecstasy but it ends up just being escapism you know as a way of not confronting your life so you escape into novels or you just escape into watching endless sci-fi repeats or you just kind of Netflix and chill, you know, like. Uh, it, so even ecstasy or self transcendence through the arts can be a form of just unhealthy or addictive escapism. And if you look at uh, music in a way, the, the, the problem about treating, say, rock and roll or rave music as a substitute for religion is that, um, yes, it gives you some of the aspects of religion. It gives you that ecstatic experience sometimes. But what does it not give you? It doesn't always give you genuine, deep community. I mean, yes, I, I, I felt an incredible sense of community for six hours while I was on MDMA to rave. But, you know, I didn't really stay in touch with any of the people I was raving with. And we weren't really you know we were just there for the highs we weren't really supporting each other through through the difficult moments in life um also there's a risk of looking to pop stars to be uh, kind of preachers or to be spiritual leaders and i think that's what the 60s kind of tried to do um they tried to look to people like the beatles or john lennon particularly or to Bob Dylan, to be these kinds of spiritual guides for them. And I don't know if you've ever seen this great documentary, um, No Direction Home, by Martin Scorsese. It's all about Bob Dylan. And you see Dylan really, really uncomfortable in the role that his his generation has put him in. He said, I don't know. I don't know what you should do with your lives. I'm just a singer. Um, I, you know, he's just, a, he's a poet, really. So, So that's another issue with turning... Trying to make religion—sorry—trying to make music a substitute for religion is sometimes that's a tremendous pressure to put on musicians who are just you know, mainly there just to kind of sing and create. They're not there to be spiritual guides for you. And then, and I think an, a, a third problem with making, uh, trying to make music or the arts some kind of substitute for religion is music and the arts gives you a window beyond the self. It gives you a glimpse of something greater than your little ego, a window beyond it. But it doesn't really give you a ladder to transform yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like um, to to actually not just glimpse beyond your ego, but transform your ego. That takes like practice. That takes a kind of daily practice. And I think wisdom, I mean, let's not use the word religions. Let's just say wisdom traditions. Wisdom traditions like um, Buddhism say or, or or Christian wisdom or um, or even things like Greek philosophy, I think they can give you both the kinds of window beyond the ego but but also a kind of practices for that daily work that can help you um, transform it because it is very slow work so I guess what I'm saying is I think that music and the arts are a really important part of the picture. Um, And you can see that if you go to um, any kind of uh, religious ceremony around the world, they will use religion, they will use the arts, they will use poetry. But I don't know if they're enough on their own. They, they, um, They tend to work best in coordination with other things. We still need those kinds of daily practices uh, for the slow work of, of, of transforming ourselves, Does that make sense? It does.
0: And, uh, let's turn back to drugs. Cause in fact, your next chapter, you talk more about drugs. You call that your psychedelic wonderland, uh, on the stop on your tour. And there's actually a positive side to the use of drugs in ecstatic practice as well. Um, we know that it has been used throughout history um, for ritualistic significance and so forth. So tell us a little bit maybe about the more positive side of the drugs. Yeah,
1: well, obviously, I've had firsthand experience of, of, of the kind of negative side uh, of, of drugs, and particularly of, of psychedelics. So I had this these bad trips when I was 18, um, which which hurt me for a while. But I was interested, while I was researching this book, Um, to see that there has been a a kind of renaissance in scientific research into psychedelics um, over the last um, 13 years or so. So um, respected um, research centers like the Johns Hopkins Medical College, like Imperial College in London, like Zurich um, University in uh, Switzerland, have restarted research into psychedelics, uh, by which I mean thing, drugs like LSD and magic mushrooms and ketamine, after a pretty much a 40-year hiatus. Um, so, you know, back in the 60s, of course, there was this explosion of interest in psychedelics done in a very um, rather chaotic and uh, over-evangelical way. I mean, most infamously, you had the Harvard psychologist Timothy Leary um, saying that everyone in America should take LSD. Uh, every teenager should take LSD, uh, calling himself the prophet of a new religion of LSD. So he got himself, you know, he would throw parties at Harvard where he was giving LSD to undergraduates. So he got himself rapidly fired from Harvard and then <laughs> public enemy number one by Richard Nixon. And he had to go on the run. He was then... Actually, it was an extraordinary story. He was put in prison, and then he was bust out of prison by this kind of terrorist group called the Weathermen. Uh, uh, he was actually, you know, he was in the prison cell next to Charles Manson, who who used LSD in his um, in his kind of crazy cult. So that's an interesting, you know, <laughs> my there between Timothy Leary and Charles Manson. Anyway, as I, as you can tell, Leary really ruined the reputation of psychedelics, uh, and so they were banned even for research purposes, which was a great pity because early research in the 1950s and 60s found they could, when they were used carefully, um, be very therapeutic for people. And what's happened in the last 15 years is um, research has started again, but in a much quieter and more careful and measured way by, um, by respected scientists who were very careful not to tell Everyone to do LSD, for example, um, and they've had good results in some of these early trials. So uh, they found that um, you know one uh, dose of psilocybin, which is the, the psychedelic chemical in magic mushrooms, one dose of that helped a lot of people. Um, something like forty uh, percent of people in a trial to recover uh, from treatment-resistant depression. So these were people who hadn't responded to any other treatment like cognitive therapy or Prozac. There was another trial that found um, 80% of smokers after um, two doses of psilocybin or of magic mushrooms gave up smoking, um, which was far higher than any other kinds of um, method. Um, Another trial found that uh, one psychedelic trip um, helped people who were suffering from life-threatening cancer to feel much less depressed and anxious. Uh, so it seemed to even shift their attitude to death, at least to either to make them much more accepting of it or uh, to make them open to the possibility that maybe death in some way wasn't the end. And when they were making sense of... So this is uh, remarkable, really. I mean, so a lot of psychiatrists are very excited by psychedelics because... Psychiatrists haven't really found any new uh, successful drugs to treat emotional and mental problems since Prozac in the uh, nineteen I guess 80s um, so there's a lot of interest in these new psychedelic drugs as a treatment for emotional and behavioral problems um, and uh, in fact last week the uh, FDA in America approved, Uh, a new ketamine-type drug uh, for depression. Um, The FDA is looking at approving um, MDMA uh, for post-traumatic stress. And I am pretty confident that um, other types of psychedelics like magic mushrooms and possibly LSD will be approved for the treatment of things like um, depression and anxiety and possibly addiction. So um, I'm surprised by um, how, how fast it's moving, really. Um, and so the question, maybe some of your listeners are wondering, is how then do these, do these drugs do this? Well, the interesting thing is um, the scientists studying it say that um, what the drug does, what these drugs do, is give people what some scientists call an experience of ego dissolution and what other scientists call a mystical-type experience. So scientists in London call it ego dissolution because they don't really like the word mystical. They think that sounds too kind of spiritual. While scientists in the States, particularly at Johns Hopkins and NYU, they prefer to talk about mystical type experiences. They, They see it in a more spiritual thing. But in fact, they're talking about a similar kind of experience, which is that what psychedelics seem to do is we tend, put it this way, in our ordinary egos, we're often quite stuck in habits. We can be stuck in the habit of rumination, for example, thinking a lot about um, ourselves and our problems and our faults. And we can get stuck in a rather negative habitual story about who we are and how the world is. Um, like, I'm, I'm no good. I'm a failure. I'm an addict, for example. And what psychedelics seem to do is um, to kind of dissolve our ordinary sense of ego, dissolve that ordinary habitual story that we tell about ourselves. And they give people often a deep sense of connection to something greater than them, like connection to their deeper self or connection to all things or connection to the universe. So in that sense, it's very similar to a lot of these other types of ecstatic experience that I'm talking about. And out of that ego dissolution, people often feel a sense of insight and power to see where their old, habitual, their old habits were messing them up and to say, for some reason or other, a kind of freedom to, to choose a different story, a freedom to, 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 to choose to, to, to live their life a different way, to say, right, I'm not going to be addicted to smoking anymore, or perhaps I'm not going to be so afraid of death, or I have no need to be so depressed anymore. So it kind of dissolves our old rigid habits uh, and creates a space for new habits, for neuroplasticity to emerge. One scientist compares it to like, let's say um, your habitual thoughts are like habitual ski tracks down a mountain. uh, And they've kind of become very ingrained. So everyone follows the same habitual route and a psychedelic experience or indeed any ecstatic experience is like shaking up the snow so that new roots can be created, new neural pathways. So, I mean, in a way, this is similar to a lot of these other types of ecstatic experience that I talk about in the book. I think sometimes when people are talking or writing about psychedelics, they can get obsessed with them and fixated with them and think that psychedelics is the only route to these kinds of Spiritual or mystical experiences. In fact, no. As as we've discussed, there are many different routes, but I would say that psychedelics are a very reliable route. Uh, you don't know every time you go to church, or every time you go to a rock festival, uh, or every time you know uh, you go to a gallery that you're gonna whether you're gonna have a, 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 an ecstatic experience. But you can be pretty sure you probably are if you take. Say magic mushrooms or LSD within the right setting, uh, you're probably going to have some kind of altered state of consciousness, some kind of experience of ego dissolution. Um, but of course, um, there are there are risks to it as well. In all these kinds of experiences, I mean, what, what what psychedelic researchers say is you have to be very you have to pay attention to what they call the set and the setting. The set means the intention that you bring to the experience. Are you taking psychedelics just for a, a fun time? Are you taking it just for ego aggrandizement? How strong, how, how good is your intention? So that can make a big difference. And secondly, the setting, are you taking psychedelics in a mm. setting that's conducive to a positive healing experience? I think back to when I had my bad trip when I was 18, I was doing LSD at a kind of warehouse rave where I didn't know anyone. I was already quite strung out because I'd been doing too much too many drugs that summer, so really I had a bad set and a bad setting, and it wasn't surprising I had a rather bad trip. So um, researchers say you know you should you should be careful about trying to do it among you know friends of yours uh, in in a, in a safe place in a, in a very calm peaceful place with a good intention, uh, and then you're more likely to have a positive healing experience.
0: All right, well, let's move on to contemplation. Uh, you trace the decline of contemplative practice in Christianity, starting in the Enlightenment period, as you mentioned, um, through to the popularization of Eastern meditation techniques that have become popular in the 20th century. So maybe give us an overview of these developments and tell us where we are now with the so-called mindfulness.
1: Well, uh, yes. So in, as you say, there is this decline of contemplation um, In Western culture. If you look at medieval culture, there was this idea uh, of there being two uh, important activities in a Christian's life. There was la vita activa, or the active life, which is trying to do good works. And then there was la vita contemplativa, which was the inner life, trying to do work on yourself. So there was an idea of balancing outer work and inner work. But then there was this sudden disastrous in a way decline of contemplation um, uh, through the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. So in Britain, for example, Henry VIII dissolved uh, the monasteries. He shut down something like 800 monasteries uh, over a two-year space. So we had this, we lost within two years, this whole kind of infrastructure. Um, these all these maps and guides for inner exploration. We lost all these techniques for contemplation, and we ended up with a culture very much focused on the outside world on controlling and ex- and exploiting the external environment, but with very few resources for understanding our inner selves um, uh, you know very few maps. We had to wait until uh, psychodynamic uh, psychology for the works of people like Freud and Jung, and even then they were often far less uh, psychologically sophisticated and literate than what we found in contemplative wisdom traditions uh, in, say, uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Christianity. Um, so uh, there, was, um, there was this, I, I think it was very sad loss of, of, of contemplation in Western culture. And it was, in, it was unsustainable, that situation, because as, as Carl Jung said, we were such strangers to our inner selves. Um, So there was a desperate need for uh, techniques and guides to the inner life, techniques of contemplation. Um, And that's really what happened in the 1960s. I mean, we mentioned this Charles Taylor's phrase, the supernova of spiritual practices. So there was this sudden influx of Eastern contemplative practices into Western culture, Um, Buddhist meditation, meditation. Hindu meditation, Taoism, Tai Chi, uh, Hare Krishna, and, and so on, transcendental meditation, all these different kinds of practices, which became tremendously popular, and have become and are becoming even more so. So apparently the number of Americans who meditate has gone up from 4% in 2012 to 14% in 2018, which is remarkable, isn't it? That's a tripling of the number of Americans who meditate just in six years. Um, So there's been, um, I I guess, a huge revival of it. Um, Though sometimes people are just taking the technique of mindfulness um, and using it as a relaxation technique without any uh, of the original ethical context for these practices. Originally, of course, it was connected to the idea of right living and right speech and right livelihood. And 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 now often it's just a kind of technique that you can use to relax yourself, even if you're a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a pretty bad person. Um, so that's one of the issues I have with, with modern mindfulness. But uh, in this chapter, I went to a Vipassana retreat, which is a 10 day meditation rest- uh, retreat. I tried that out. I really hadn't had any experience of or hardly any experience of contemplation before. And I signed up for this retreat and I looked on the first day and I and I looked at the schedule and I saw that we were expected to to do sitting meditation for 10 hours a day uh, for 10 days. So 100 hours altogether. So this was quite an ordeal. Um, but I also found it a very interesting experience. And I guess I found I grew through it. And since then, I've been on several other retreats. Um, and uh I found them very helpful. I, I found that they've they've helped me to become more mindful and uh and I would say a little bit more compassionate as well. I I I love a kind of contemplation called loving-kindness meditation, where it's it's just basically you wish yourself well, you wish other people well, and then you wish all beings in, in the universe well. And you do that kind of every day, and you get into a habit of kindness. So I'm um i'm 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 quite fond of that practice of contemplation. Um, but you know what I've learned is there are many different types of contemplation uh, religious, non-religious, atheist, theist, some that use uh, focus on breathing, some which use movement, some which use poetry or art. Uh, and I think uh, many of your listeners could 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 find a kind of uh you know a a, a, a practice. Which suits them? Maybe walking meditation, for example. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, I think there's 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 quite a lot in that chapter that that your readers might find interesting and useful.
0: Excellent. Well, Chapter 8 takes a much darker turn to the underbelly of ecstatic experience, and that's the ecstasy of violence and war. And so after the types of encounters we've been discussing so far, this notion is pretty jarring. So first, tell us about the four basic sources of ecstatic experience in this com- uh, in this context, uh, and then tell us a little bit more about how we can balance that. Hmm.
1: I can't remember what I said. In- oh, sorry. I Combat
0: flow, ecstatic togetherness, <laughs> participation in sacred myth, and blood catharsis.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm talking about in this chapter, the main theme is that if you look over human history, one of the most reliable methods um, people have reported to bring themselves to kind of ecstatic experience is uh, violence and war uh that could be everything from hunting you know the, the experience of being in a pack hunting gave people this feeling of like uh ecstatic uh, togetherness with their with their tribe and also there's something about being in a, in a dangerous situation like a hunt or like a battle which gives you what I call combat flow. So a flow experience is an experience where you're just very absorbed in the moment, very absorbed, absorbed in your activity. Well, nothing gives you that kind of flow experience like war and like, uh, like being in a life-threatening situation. Now, some people get flow states through things like extreme sports. They put themselves in a life-threatening situation, like say free climbing or just climbing, and, and it gives them that flow state but a lot of soldiers will come back from in the, from from wars and they'll be a bit embarrassed to admit it but they'll say they never felt so alive than during battle because not necessarily because they were turned into kind of you know bloodlustful uh, berserkers though sometimes that would happen but just because they 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 felt their consciousness was so alive because their lives were in danger um so and then you 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 sometimes get this idea of um sacred myths so there you see sometimes rather toxic political movements giving people a sense of ecstasy um, so extremist movements will do that they they become a kind of alternative religion so my hero aldous huxley said um, the great religions of the 19th and the 20th century uh, was actually nationalism uh, nationalism was the kind of you know the modern alternative to religion rather than worshipping god you worship the state and you worship uh the national leader uh this kind of uh puffed up strong man strutting on the stage and saying how great he is and how great his country is um and often in those kinds of political religions um they they almost have a rally aspect to them. You think about Nazism as the you know fascism is the classic example of this. It was a kind of um a fake religion, a religion of worshipping Germany and worshipping the Fuhrer. And you see the kind of ecstasy that people would feel at Nazi rallies, and they were very good at using ritual and and, and pageantry and the huge crowds together. And then Hitler was very good at working the crowd up into this ecstatic fever, all about how wonderful Germany was and the glorious vision for Germany. And then, of course, you also see a demonization of your enemies. Uh, it's very uh, easy in, these kinds of, um, in any kind of ecstatic movement. You say, you know, we're so together, we're so um, special and, 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 and kind of loved. And but our enemies are so terrible and demonic uh, and wouldn't the world be a better place if our enemies were were just extinguished. Um, And so you see that today as well. You see the revival of those kinds of ecstatic nationalist movements and you see the demonization of enemies, um, whether that's um, immigrants or uh, like um, your political opponents or other religions. And then you can get the sense of um, you know the sacred sacrifice of your life to destroy your enemies. So you look at um, you know the, the 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 idiot in New Zealand who considers himself some kind of sacred knight because he shoots defenseless people in a mosque, or or, or idiot followers of um, ISIS who think of themselves as kind of you know, ecstatic martyrs because they've, um, you know, blown up innocent civilians. So people can get, um, unfortunately, very poisoned by these kinds of toxic ideologies, which um, give them a sense of transcendence and meaning and togetherness. Um, So they take these natural human yearnings for togetherness, for meaning and transcendence, but, but but package them in a very toxic form and really a way that destroys people's lives and then makes them extremely harmful to their society as well. Um, So what's the solution to that then? Well, I guess we need to try and try to give people healthier forms of togetherness. How can we feed those basic human impulses, our basic needs for togetherness, for belonging, for meaning and transcendence? but in ways that aren't toxic, in ways that don't demonize our enemies. Um, So that is, and one way I think is not to pathologize transcendence, but to see that it is a basic human urge and we've got to find healthier ways to talk about it and give people access to it. Otherwise people find these toxic subcultures and that's where they get their, their kind of hit of transcendence
0: okay well our final stop on our tour here is uh you call it futureland so it's looking forward and uh let's start with cyberspace we take the internet and our personal computers kind of for granted at this point but there was a time when these things were thought to offer out of body experiences is that right
1: um yeah i mean i i look at the um the history of silicon valley uh and how the people who developed like the personal com- computer and the internet and virtual reality uh, tended to be kind of um hippies um who are experimenting with psychedelics at the same time and who are kind of um looking uh, they were going and living in communes like spiritual communes like Steve Jobs was for example i mean he 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 kind of worked lived in a commune and picked apples in the orchard and that's where he got the name for his uh his computer brand and in some ways um these early pioneers saw cyberspace as a kind of um, ecstatic space they could escape into, where they'd be free from uh, government and even free from matter, a world of pure mind, of pure information. Uh, and, and they thought of kind of technology um, like the computer and the internet as being these technologies for ecstasy, which would help liberate us from uh, the, the bonds of... Um, Our nation and our government, and even from our own bodies, and and I guess you can see that to some extent. The way that we can just go online and and we can be whoever we want to be online. We can be whatever shape we want to be online. Uh, You know, we could we we can invent avatars for ourselves, connect with people all over the world in a second, and so there is something kind of I guess spiritual and ecstatic about that. Um, but in a way, I think, like with every um, uh, route to ecstasy, there are risks as well, um, and uh, and we've seen that. What what are the risks then? Well, the risks are of, of, of ecstatic technology, of the worship of technology, is we become addicts. That's true of every form of ecstasy. Potentially, we can become addicted to uh, drugs or booze. We can become addicted to ecstatic religion. We can become addicted to uh, war and violence, and we definitely can become addicted to technology as well. You know, we just, every time we feel a bit unhappy, we stare in a trance at our smartphones or at our laptops. And we kind of, they, they, in some ways they take us out of ourselves, but they don't take us very far. Uh, and likewise, I think we, we've seen over the last decade or so that we were, we were a bit naive and over-optimistic in thinking that the internet was just going to liberate us from all our human problems. Because what we found, unfortunately, was um, our problems came with us online. And then sometimes these these, uh, these ecstatic platforms for togetherness ended up just uh, taking us further apart. So sometimes you see on platforms like Facebook and Twitter uh, you know, the end, we ended up just still in our little separate churches. Uh, so, uh, you know, like the, you'd, you'd have democratic Twitter or Republican Twitter, and they would both end up feeling very much together with your own tribe, but hating the opposing tribes and being very rude and savage to each other. So um, in some ways, technology, I feel kind of offer this a type of failed transcendence. But of course, it's early days. I'm still interested and and, and hopeful about how technology can still help us find healthier forms of transcendence. I'm very interested to see how virtual reality will develop. And at the most simple way, for example, I still use my smartphone to help me find a kind of, um, healthier transcendence. So I have like a, a kind of meditation app on my phone, which I use every morning. And that helps me just to uh, to meditate, for example. Um, so yeah, I think often we found that technology isn't quite the perfect route to transcendence that we hoped it might be in the eighties and nineties, but I'm still interested in how it can uh, help us
0: today. Well, Jules, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm working on a couple of things. Um, I'm co-editing a book about spiritual emergencies. Um, That's basically a moment of um, an ecstatic experience, a moment of awakening, which is uh, quite messy. Uh, and may involve you just feeling quite disorientated uh, and, and even involve some kind of quasi psychotic aspects like mania or sleeplessness or, um, or, or or even kind of hearing voices and things like that. Uh, and um, basically, I'm interested in how we can help people through those kinds of messy awakening experiences um, so I'm co-editing a book about that, which is going to come open later this year. It's called Breaking Open, um, ha- uh, Navigating Spiritual Emergencies. Um, uh, I'm also, I've, I've written a little book about ayahuasca, which is a type of psychedelic drug. Uh, that book's going to be called Holiday from the Self. And it's kind of a personal account of uh, a rather, I don't know how to put it, uh rather vol uh tempestuous ayahuasca experience I had in, uh, a couple of years ago uh, it's kind of i guess it's a funny little travel book um and then i'm finally i'm researching a book about Aldous huxley um, so I have a website philosophy for life dot org which uh, listeners can go and check out uh, and that has a kind of a free newsletter which you can sign up for um and i guess I guess just, you know, seeing as we've gone through the whole book, I could just give the kind of conclusion of it. And the Conclusion of it really is after five years of searching for ecstatic experiences, um, I guess I decided that what we really need in our culture is not necessarily just more ecstatic experiences, but a more balanced attitude to them. Um, so I think that we can make two mistakes in Western culture. Uh, in our relationship to ecstasy. The first mistake, and it's a very common one, is we're too afraid of losing control. Uh, We are afraid of going beyond the ego. uh, We're in a culture which is often rather very stuck in our egos uh, and afraid of going beyond them because we don't want to look ridiculous and we don't want to go mad. So as a result, we can be very averse to ecstasy, and that's one risk. And the risk of that is you end up just stuck in your little ego feeling bored, depressed, and claustrophobic, uh, and never really surrendering to anything greater than oneself. So that's the first risk. The second risk, and this is a risk you see in subcultures like the New Age culture and the psychedelic culture, is that we become over to ecstasy. Uh, we end up chasing it. We end up just constantly searching for the next spiritual high, for the next uh, psychedelic high, for the next kind of you know Holy Spirit type encounter, uh, and I saw that a lot in, in in the kind of New Age culture where there's almost a fetishization of special uh, ecstatic experiences, and that is a risk too to become over attached to ecstasy and think that actually the meaning of life is these ecstatic experiences. Well, that's not true as far as I'm concerned. Um, these experiences aren't good or bad in themselves. They can sometimes be very helpful in giving, in helping people to heal, in helping them connect to other people, and in giving them a sense of meaning in life. Um, but you know, they can sometimes be helpful in making you kinder and wiser. But they're no, they're, there's no essential value to them in themselves. Uh, and, and if you have one of these experiences, then just think you're very special. Uh, uh, because you've had an ecstatic experience, then you've actually become a worse person. You've become just more proud, more arrogant. So the proper attitude to these kinds of experiences is actually neither to be averse to them because they're just natural and they just happen to humans naturally, or to be over-attached to them and think you're very special for having these experiences, but rather to be balanced, to have an attitude of, of equanimity which is these experiences happen, but they're neither good or bad in themselves. It's the use to which you put them and whether you let them uh, make you become a kinder uh, and wiser person. So that was really the conclusion I arrived at in in this book.
0: Oh, that's very nice. I like that. That's a lovely note to go off on. (laughs) Well, thank you again. I really enjoyed our conversation. I was glad to have a chance to talk with you about your wonderful book in person. So thanks again, Jules.
1: Thank you for having me, Carrie. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation Too. you.
0: I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Jules Evans, no relation, about his book, The Art of Losing Control, A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. I would love to hear from you about your thoughts on this book. Have you had a spontaneous spiritual experience before? Or does cathartic ecstasy have any role in your life now or at any time? You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynn Land. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, or sorry NewBooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime... I'll wish you an au revoir until my next conversation about new books in secularism.